Hi, I'm Dr. Crystal Cliff. Welcome to Gucci Side Dish. I have a very special guest on for you today. Chef Nephi Craig has 23 years culinary experience in America and around the world, in London, Germany, Brazil, and Japan. Nephi Craig is an enrolled member of the White Mountain Apache Tribe and is half Navajo. Chef Craig is also the founder of the Native American Culinary Association, or NACA, an organization and network that is dedicated to the research, refinement, and development of Native American cuisine. Chef Nephi Craig provides training, workshops, and lecture sessions on Native American cuisine for health to, unit, to schools, restaurants, universities, treatment centers, behavioral health agencies, and tribal entities from across America and abroad. Chef Craig recently served as executive chef of the Sunrise Park Resort Hotel. During his nine-year tenure at Sunrise Park Resort, Chef Craig and his White Mountain Apache culinary team achieved many national and international benchmarks in establishing a culture of indigenous foods across North America. Chef Craig was featured in the film Gather in 2020, which is where I found him on Netflix and is a documentary on indigenous food sovereignty. He's also a pioneer in the development of restorative indigenous food practices, a term which is critical for social recovery and indigenous resurgence during this age of processed and fast food and the resulting diseases. Chef Craig is an advanced certified relapse prevention specialist and behavioral health technician, currently serving as the nutritional recovery program coordinator at the Rainbow Treatment Center and the executive chef of Cafe Gojo on the White Mountain Apache tribe in Arizona. Chef Craig, Welcome. I am so honored to have you here with us, sir. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to jump into your training and your experience. Your bio, when you sent it to me, is like 18 pages long and so impressive, just so impressive. So if you could tell us a little bit about your training and your background and your chef's journey and how all that began for you. Yeah, okay. Well, my background in cooking, I started off back in 1998 by taking the typical route by going to a culinary school in Arizona. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know what direction food would take me. I just kind of um, was introduced to professional cooking through kind of the lens of classical cuisine or French cuisine. And so that's kind of how I decided to go about it was to study classical French cooking in the beginning. From all the study and magazines and books and the messaging I was getting back then, it was like you should learn classical techniques and eventually make your way to France, get some solid training and you can come back to America, you know, and kind of that kind of thing. So that's kind of how I pieced it together. I began working at a place called the Country Club at DC Ranch while I was in culinary school. I was taking 17 credit hours in the daytime and I was working full time at night. It was very apparent I was learning way more on the job because I was working for a chef named Chris Olson. I didn't know at the time, but they were really good chefs. They had traveled a lot and they were very experienced. And so I was fortunate to find that job and work with them. They recognized what I couldn't see in myself. Uh, I was organized and quick and you know enthusiastic about doing this work. And so um, that's what I just continued to do. 
I would stay there at the Country Club at DC Ranch um, just under five years working and, you know, working and training in all the different areas from catering and banquets to like the snack shop on the golf course. Uh, I did um, morning shifts and mostly dinner shifts. It was a great place to get really a well-rounded experience from Chef Olson and his teams. And it was uh, probably one of the most valuable early experiences of my, my life. From there, I would go and see like every year from 1998, when I was in culinary school, one of my early instructors, I would always talk about one of the best places in Phoenix. And that was called Mary Elaine's at the Phoenician. And it was a five-star, five-diamond property at the Phoenician Resort. And it was very classical French, very old school, very luxurious and opulent. It was, you know, it was the place to go if you were trying to train to be a chef. So I would apply there like two, three times a year, every year for like, you know, from 98, 99, 2000. And then finally, you know, kind of on the verge of just forgetting about it. I do one of my sous chefs on my job at the country club who knew someone who was working in Mary Lane's. And I was sitting on a cater out one evening, me and my sous chef, and he was, I was reading the French Laundry cookbook, Thomas Keller's book. And I was asking him, like, you think you could cook like this and all that stuff? And he's like, well, you know, if, if, you wanna, if you're going to cook like that, you got to work with those kind of people. And that's kind of the, that was the, the spark, I think, that kind of led to him making a phone call and I was able to get a stage at Mary Lane's at the Phoenician. I went in just thinking it was going to be a, a two night stage where I'm just like a fly on the wall, just hanging out, you know, cutting herbs, doing whatever they asked me to working for free. But at the end of my second night there, uh, the chef Bradford Thompson approached me and offered me a position and it surprised me. I, I wasn't prepared for that, but I immediately, you know, immediately and calmly said, yeah, I accepted the position. Because I had tried so hard every year to get in there. And I was turned down every year, you know, all the times I applied. And so I, he asked me, he's like, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow, chef. And <laughs> he's like, uh, no, do it right. You know, take two weeks or three weeks, tell your chef and make the transition. And you'll start as soon as you can. So that's what I did. Mary Lane's at the Phoenician was, it was intense. I had spent five years at the country club with really great chefs and when I got to the Phoenician at Mary Lane's, everything was best quality possible. All the chefs were from other renowned restaurants all across the country, from places like Danielle, from Jean George, from like the Inn at Little Washington. My partner on the meat station had just spent like three, four years at the French Laundry. So I was in a, in a realm that I think I was probably unprepared for, but I was kind <laughs> of aware. But I had a, I guess I had proven myself. Uh, Mary Lane's at the Phoenician. I make the comparison like it was climbing the mountain to learn the secrets of Kung Fu. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I had created so much mystique around it. Every time I had visited the Phoenician, I would get a copy of the menu and it was all in like gold printed leaf on the round the edges and all elegantly printed in French. I had no clue what any of that meant, you know, <laughs> I had to go and translate it with my, with my culinary books, you know? So getting in there was definitely life-changing. Mm. I did not know how important that experience would be. I look back on it right now as, you know, very, very an important learning part of my career. I think it really, I was able to really see what I was capable of 
and it was very tough. It was very, very tough. It was kind of the end of that really uh, abrasive and aggressive and real toxic hazing era. It was very tough. You know, I was one of the only people of color in the whole kitchen outside of the dishwasher, you know. Mm. But I think what I more so than all that classical training, what was really important as it relates to my my journey now is that when I got there, I saw right away there were two very important native foods on the menu. And there was the buffalo on the meat station. They were reinterpreting beef turnitos rossini with buffalo tenderloin. Mm. And they were they were reinterpreting a classic French roulade dish with uh, quinault river salmon. And both of these animals, you know, the salmon from the Quinault River and the bison from the Great Plains were, I knew, were very, very important. And, uh, you know, up until that point, I had been kind of doing my own study, feeling like I wanted to create something where other Native chefs could connect. And I think that was a very important benchmark where I got to realize and see Indigenous foods and cultivars being used at that level. So that, all that climb... And all of that journey to that point really kind of sets the stage for the rest of my life till now. Mm-hmm. When I look back on it, it's like yesterday, almost. Still very, very close to heart and mind. But I would stay at the Phoenician over a year. And I would I would be the I'd start as an entremetier on the meat station. And I would finish as a saucier. So it was very intense. A lot more could be said about all that. But it was pretty neat. Really forged me, I think. That's fabulous. I love that. It was almost a trial by fire for you. It was, you were thrown in there. You were surrounded these people that obviously that you had wanted to be around for a long time and were able to learn so much within that. And I love that, that they place these indigenous foods onto the menu and that you were seeing that it was able to be used in this way. And I know at least when, when I read that and some of the articles about you, I thought what a on one hand, it was, um, you know, the way that we take these foods and we feel them differently. We see them as money-making things, right? How much can we charge for this? How much can we charge for that in the restaurant industry? However, I know that for, or I imagine for Indigenous people, that when you see that on the menu, that's an entirely different story for you. It's an entirely different story for Indigenous people to see their food items, especially the buffalo and the salmon, which are these primary foods that these indigenous people lived on and around and and survived on being presented in this way for people that at least on those tribal lands would never be able to come into these properties, would most likely never be able to experience them in the way that they were being plated and in that environment they were being plated in. So I can only imagine that those seeing those things there kind of sparked that spark within you and maybe even had some of your ancestors speaking to you, whispering to you saying, you know, grandson, son, please come work and come bring this medicine back to the people. So I I love that story. I do love that story. So tell me though, you had a journey and you came back to White Mountain and I wrote it down from your Netflix interview. And it was just so beautiful. You said that when you crash landed back on the res and began to explore the universe of native foods, and that was one of the things that helped you get clean. So what brought you back to, to that area to, I assume you grew up there. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I was born on the White Mount Apache tribe where I'm at right now. And I'm mm-hmm. also half Navajo. So I spent about 10 years on the Navajo Nation in Window Rock, Arizona. And um, after I left Mary Lane's, it was pretty amazing because I really felt like, wow, this is possible. We could do something at this level with native foods. And so I kind of felt like I wanted to explore and find others that were like me or just see what what else was possible. Because the minute I got deeper into native foods, when I left Mary Lane's at the Phoenician, it opened up all of these different realms where I had been solely focused on fine dining and, and restaurant culture and the chef world, trying to be training to be a chef. And I branched off and left the Phoenician to go independently on my own. It opened up the realm of education, of language prevention, diabetes management, history, agriculture, so many different pathways just opened up and it really expanded my paradigm and changed it forever that it no longer became about fine dining. It, it kind of helped me to think like, okay, I'm going to do something that's, you know, pretty daunting in terms of other world cuisines. It really kind of made me want to set my own stage or develop my own style that could communicate a message that I was feeling, but also something that my mom and my dad and my relatives back home would look at and recognize as native. And fine dining was unrecognizable as native. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it would really kind of caused me to really kind of begin to expand and really kind of forced me to begin to study um, nutrition and language and farming and get a basic understanding of public health and epidemiology if to the best I could, you know? And so I spent from 2004 until about 2006, yeah, about those years traveling and doing a lot of independent contract work, teaching and working for free and cooking in parks and food shows and farmer's markets and different Mm -hmm. reservations across the country. I was kind of, you know, kind of felt alone during those times uh, as, you know, before a lot of social media was really hyper-connected, but I knew all the reservations across the United States, there had to be others. There had to be others feeling like I was feeling. There had to be others that were in professional kitchens, but didn't have the, I guess, um, that weren't connected with other advocates or maybe didn't even think that it was possible. So. I would begin to travel internationally after doing a lot of that contract work and independent working as an independent. And it would ultimately take me to London first, where I would work with the United States consulate or no, the Intertribal Agriculture Council. And in London and Cologne, Germany in 2006 and seven, we were working to take native foods from native American food producers and company owners to international markets. Wow. So we were taking ingredients from the United States, from Native American produced companies and take them abroad and hold large shows. And we do, I do tasting dinners and seminars around Native foods. Then in 2007 is when I went into Sao Paulo, Brazil and mm-hmm. Copos de Guardo. I was working with the United States consulate for the Shared Indigenous Heritage Festival and Sanaki University in Sao Paulo and Copos de Guardo teaching and you know, doing native foods down there. That was an important time because I got to meet other indigenous cooks from the Amazon. I got to meet other indigenous peoples that were doing the same thing I was, that they were using their foods in a restaurant setting to reclaim parts of their culture, to tell a story and to connect with health, to really kind of grasp grasp for their identity. 
And that's when it really became apparent that this was a global phenomenon. Yeah, I wasn't alone, not just in the United States. I was happening in Brazil, in this huge city, you know? Yeah. And so that same year, I would, that's when I would go to Osaka, Japan, doing the same thing and taking native foods, working at the Intercontinental Hotel, doing seminars and dinners and working with Japanese chefs. It was amazing. I think what, what I took away from Japan was the, um, the minimalist aesthetic and the respect yes. for ingredients as they are. I think up until that point in Sao Paulo and Japan, before that, my mind was kind of, um, kind of set in a classical sense that I needed to use classical techniques and ingredients and flavors mm -hmm. to achieve what I was achieving. But Japan taught me that all the Japanese from dry ingredients, fermented ingredients, really ancient techniques were just as sophisticated, if not more than what we perceived as classical. So I just kind of really, again, changed my perspective. I would come home in late 2007 and I would be in Phoenix right in the, around when the economy had tanked, you know, and right. I was back in the Valley and trying to find work. I was working part-time here and there, like banquets and stuff. But I couldn't find anything stable um, at the time. Like it was like, you know, middle of the summer and that's the dead season in Phoenix. So I went back to the res. By the end of the summers when I had uh, our tribe every year host a job fair. And I heard of the job fair and I went and applied to be a line cook at our ski resort called Sunrise Park Resort. Mm -hmm. And it was at the hotel. And uh, I had grown up here on the res and that uh, that old hotel was... I tell people it's like that movie Hot Tub Time Machine, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It, it hadn't changed since the 80s, you know? It was still <laughs> you know, old school colored and it was pretty neat. But that's how I kind of came back. You see, my path does involve the addiction and alcoholism. So mm -hmm. being kind of on a, on a reckless journey in my, in my late 20s and still not completely finding my style or my voice or the clarity yet, it was very difficult to hold things together in the city. And so when I came back, I would kind of begin to, not knowing that's when I would begin to settle. And being at Sunrise Park Resort was like another amazing chapter in, in my journey. Right. This is so beautiful. I love that you were able to travel around the world and experience the food, food medicines from my aspect, the food medicines of these different cultures and these beautiful cultures. And I do love how each culture's food obviously arises out of the environment that they're in, but it's looking at it from the standpoint of the environment, the plants that grew in those environments grew there to be able to survive that environment. They chose to be there. They, they decided, you know, this is a good place for me to be. And they evolved. And then as humans came along and we began to understand that these are the foods that will sustain us. These are the plant medicines. These are the, the stone medicines. And these are, you know, the animal medicines. I love, and I'm fascinated by those different cultures that evolve out of the environment that they originated in. And even though, you know, time moves on and where, where we are now, that ancient knowing and connection with the land is still so relevant to the food medicine. And I imagine to the food that you create now as well, I can only imagine how powerful it must be for you to be creating food 
from the food that was grown on the land that you are definitely connected to, and then able to take this food and feed the people that are also on the land from the land. It's this amazing circle of connection and reconnection and relationship. Everything, at least in the medicine that I practice, is about relationship and how everything, one thing influences the next thing. And so, you know, I just see that over and over and over again in your story and how all these different cultures were layering, but they were also sort of whispering to you that what is possible if you go back to where you grew up, where your soul is, where your ancestors are, where your your people are walking still and find your own food cultures and food medicines there in the dust and there in the in the mountains and bring that out and create your own paradigm of food. It's just such a beautiful story. I and I just get such great joy when I think about all of the resurgence that you are helping bring about on the White Mountain, you know, land. And I was watching, I was watching the uh, Netflix again today and I'm just I'm so deeply moved by the connection to the land and you're bringing all of these these ancient seeds and these ancient things back. I think you had Anazazi beans. I mean, and those were found in archaeological dig. I mean, the connection, the energetic and spiritual connection to those beans, to those seeds in that land, having that, how those beans, I imagine this is how my mind works, having a conversation with that land and the medicine and the secrets and the vibration that that land holds and how they're whispering to each other and helping each other find that resonance, you know, as they support one another to come in and then speak the medicine to the people that consume those food and whisper, we call it ganyao, whisper to those individuals, here's how we heal, heal, here's how we remember. The memory is in the land, the vibration is there, and you are of this land, and let us whisper back to you, let us speak to you who you are through this vibrational resonance. And it just, I just, I'm continually blown away by this story of yours. I love it. Thank you so much. So beautiful. Yeah. When you mentioned um, how other cultures were layering and informing and showing potential, they were also stripping away too. They were also Mm -hmm. stripping away different perspectives and paradigms. It was like, it needed to be this really intense layering in my early years and then mm-hmm. it starts to strip away and get about simplicity. Right. It, it was really neat. When I went to Sunrise Park Resort, I was just thinking, I'm going to stay here one season and go back to the city in the spring. And mm-hmm. I ended up staying at the resort almost nine years. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, because when I first started at the resort, I on my first day, I walked in and saw the whole kitchen. Everybody from the dishwasher to the manager to everybody on the team, they were all White Mountain Apache or Native all from the community where I grew up and I didn't realize it, but that's what I was looking for my entire career. I searched all Mm -hmm. over the world and I found it right in that banged up old hotel on my res, you know, but there had to be a lot of work done. We had to change the menu, start cooking from scratch and really kind of put on racehorse blinders to avoid any distractions because we were unlike anything else. A lot of variables at that time, would really kind of take place. Number one is that up in the mountains where the ski resort is, that's our sacred mountains. 
Mm. that's where the medicine plants come from. That's where the rains come from. That's where our crown dancers come from. It's a very powerful place in our mountains there. And number two, the combination of working with an Apache, our all Apache team, being confronted by staffing issues related to structural violence, lateral violence, um, addiction, different types of, you know, impacts. We would see people thrive and we would see people fail. And mm-hmm. it was it was an amazing time to hang on so tight and go for the ride. And while I was there, my father would pass away. He would get cancer in uh, 2010 and he would pass away that year. And that was a very profound turning point. And it was one of the layering elements of trauma and loss that contributed to my decision to get sober. Mm-hmm. Because when I lost my dad, it became very apparent that I was on my own. It became very apparent that his support of me and my career and me trying to get sober all throughout my youth, that now he was gone and I had to make or break. You know, there was mm-hmm. no one really there. I mean, I had other extended family member, of course, but it was very apparent that it was time. That was the year that I got clean. And with the clarity of sobriety, I began to hear the voices of the cultivars even more. I began to, as with the clarity of sobriety and the humility it requires, my ego was beginning to get tamed. My heart got more sensitive and I was mm-hmm. open to other ideas because of my insecurity started to get chipped away more and more and more, right? My defenses right. were less and less and less. And my heart is open to new messaging. So I'm hearing more and seeing more. And now I understand that that biopsychosocial of detox and recovery was happening right at that time. And so, you know, it's just a dynamic combination of landscape, people, time and place. In uh, 2000, I would stay there when I got clean in 2011, I'm sorry, when my dad passed away in 2010. I would stay there until 2006. And in the bio, when it says um, established, you know, many benchmarks, that's when I took that idea that I had in culinary school about finding others like me. And Mm -hmm. I brought it back to life. And I just, I started holding conferences at the resort. Number one, the main reason that I wanted to start gathering native chefs was to show my my culinary team that I wasn't crazy. <laughs> you know, like to show them it that I wasn't possible. This <laughs> it's possible there's other people doing it. And so bringing them to the mountains, all these other native chefs for the first time in 2012 mm. was very powerful. And mm. I started a blog called Apaches in the Kitchen at Blogspot. I love your blog. Yeah, I haven't written in it in years, but it's uh, pretty old school. A lot has changed since then. Yes. I stopped writing in it because the work started getting spiritually deeper and deeper. The more rooted I became, the more access I got to cultural intellectual property and ancestral knowledge. So I began to pull back from putting stuff out there. Right, right. But we would do a lot of stuff at Sunrise. A lot of networking, social media began to really grow and blow up more. And it kind of got to this point where it began to kind of plateau and I kind of sensed it. One of the most powerful elements of what we did at Sunrise was our chef's table. And I remember when I was at Mary Lane's at the Phoenician, my chef, Brad Thompson, he had a chef's table. 
it was this big opulent little table tucked away in the corner. And we used to cook special menus for that table, you know, four, six, eight people. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself as a young line cook, I was like, I'm going to do that someday. I'm going to have a, you know, five star fancy chef's table someday when I do it. And when I finally did it, it was on this old beat up, you know, hotel on the reservation. But the Beautiful. articulation, the writing and the wording and the sobriety, the combination of those and how my, I guess, my, the way my new or revitalized ethics framed my writing was really powerful, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of began to broadcast and, you know, grow it. So there's a lot of press from that time, you know, big publications and whatnot. But we always stayed focused on ourselves and our team because we're on the res, you know. I mean, we're mm-hmm. far away from large metropolitan areas and we're unlike any other, you know, professional kitchens out there. So, but that experience with the combination of sobriety, loss, recovery, and cultural resurgence in that hotel with our teams sets the stage for what I do now at the Rainbow Treatment Center. That's beautiful. So much of, of what you just said is all about the five, what we call the five elements in Chinese medicine. And for me, I created a five elements of wellness, things I've observed over the last 18 years of of treating people. And these are the same elements that when we apply them to food, we see these in the food. So the spiritual aspect is so deep. It runs, it is you. I, I believe it is you. It runs through you. You can't separate you from the land, from your ancestors, from the vibrations and the energy of those mountains to the people that walked there centuries before so that spiritual you know, aspect is so deep, deeply ingrained within you. And I love how you said, because the next piece is the nourishment piece. But for me, nourishment isn't just about nutrients. I, I don't really care if it's high in vitamin K or any of that kind of stuff. That's secondary to how it works within the body, how you create relationship with that food. And you may not have a huge you know, palate, you may not eat 18 or 20 different types of foods and it doesn't matter. It's the relationship you form with the foods that you can work with. And so the nourishment piece is more about how it works with you and how you work with it. And there is that relationship going on, always relationship. You know, there's the aspect for us, at least for me, of self-care, self-cultivation. And that is the part that is the ritual and ceremony aspect. You know, even in the kitchen, I imagine everything is so ritualized. There's so much that has to be done. You know, mise en passe, the, you know, the way that you, the way that you chop, the way that you move, there is such a beautiful ceremonial procession through all of that. And I think that, and at least within Chinese medicine, especially Taoist food energetics, there is a medicine and a music that is playing in that kitchen with the the bubbling and the popping and the hissing and the chopping and the sounds coming from the foods themselves. And that is part of that whole ritual experience. That's whole part of the whole celebration or the whole ceremony of it. And they're speaking their medicine. They're already healing you by speaking the medicine to you from that aspect. And then, you know, From there, there's the whole team and your team is all from the White Mountain, you know, area. And so I cannot imagine how powerful that must have been for you to walk in and see all of these people and know that you were home and that this was the paradigm that you were creating and a part of. 
that team experience. And especially even now coming from farms there on the White Mountain land, all these foods, all of these things, all of these people from farm to fork and from fork to what I call fork to finish, all along that pathway are people that have are not just they're living there, they are part of that land. You know, their people are part of the land, their families are part of that land. So that team experience just is woven so deeply into everything. And then of course, we come into the environment itself and the environment itself is so magical and so important that it supports that spirit, right? You can't separate yourself from the land. You are the same. You are one and the same. And I just see so much of that in the story you just shared and how beautiful, how beautiful that is. It's just, that's why I wanted to speak to you because when I saw this on Gather, I mean, first I wept, I wept all the way through it, by the way. And it was just, it touched me so deeply to see this beautiful demonstration of what I know as food medicine. And food medicine isn't just how that food goes inside of you and heals you. It's how the food joins a community together, how it heals a community, how it can go back through and heal generational traumas. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do as, you know, white colonial Americans to make up for the atrocities that we did. There's absolutely nothing we can do. And I am fully and consciously aware that I am a steward to and holding a medicine of a culture that's not my own. And even though Chinese medicine is not a closed culture, I didn't have to be born into it and I didn't have to be initiated into it to practice it. That's why I take such great care and try to honor my Taoist priest and his grandfather and the lineage that goes back to, you know, 2000 years before Christ ever walked on the earth, you know, and so it's so important to me to do things in a right and good way and to honor everyone that made it possible for me to hold this medicine. And I know I'm holding it just for a short amount of time, but I just, I see the medicine that you're doing because you're not only healing people from the inside, you're not only helping with these health disparities, but you're healing this generational trauma and all of these, these things that occurred hundreds of years ago, you know, that began and ended. And now you're bringing back the healing to the land, to the people to your culture. And it's just, it's so beautiful to bear witness to. And that's why I wanted to speak to you. I'm just, I'm blown away by what you're doing and I'm so deeply impressed. And, you know, I just, I, you are food medicine and it's just phenomenal to know that you exist in the world. And so heartening to hear that there are other indigenous peoples who are trying to do the same with their cultures, because I, you know, it is time it is time that everyone remember who they are, where they came from, and to embrace that. We need that. This world is so devoid of that sense of belonging and that relationship. We've lost relationship. And what I see and what I know is from these health disparities and from the White Mountain Apache land, the greatest health disparity that you guys had, at least from a 2020 report, is diabetes, secondary to obesity, and then the cardiovascular issues. And what I know from the food medicine aspect is that when you have anyone who eats foods 
that are not of your DNA, not of your cultural heritage, then your body will see that as a foreign pathogen. And it will either see it as something that it needs to wall off and create inflammation about, and then eventually become an autoimmune disorder, or it sees it as a vibrational residence that it doesn't quite align with. And the body, the organs have to work really hard to try to function with that vibrational energetic that is not of its DNA, not of its knowing and not of its culture. And the only way, the only way to heal is to eat the foods of your culture. And if you can eat it from the land, grown on the land of the place that you come from, that your DNA was composed of, the healing mechanism of that is absolutely rapid. So I am I am hoping that someone is doing research and studying the results of all the work that you're doing and that I believe his name is Clayton Harvey, that all the work that he is doing as well to see the change in these health disparities. Because I just know through my doctorate, I my focus was food insecurity and particularly diabetes and then resulting kidney transplantation. That was my major focus. And I see that happening there on the White Mountain land, Apache land. And I'm really curious. I really hope and see that the food that you're providing for people is going to really shift their health in a tremendous way and have the ability to realign and have their organs come back online and have their bodies function in the beautiful way they were intended before colonialism and everything that 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 we did forced them to stop consuming their foods and the foods that were wild crafted and wild gathered and eaten and it just it just absolutely floors me one of the quotes that my Taoist priest master jeffrey un has always said is that to change your life you must first change your food and then we know that to the opposite to be true. We've seen it happen that the way to decimate a people is to remove the food source. And so I'm so thrilled to see that you and others are bringing your food sources back because I want your health disparities to decrease. I don't want there to be a need for any research. I want to see the thriving of all people you know, and I just really, I'm really deeply impressed by what you and others are doing. So thank you for that. Thank you for your dedication. It's beautiful. It's absolutely mind blowing. And it makes, makes the rest of us. And what I hope when people hear this, this information from you, I hope that they have an awakening and an understanding and start realizing that, that we owe a tremendous amount to the indigenous peoples. And I loved your quote where on the Netflix or on the documentary that said that 70% of the food products that we're eating today comes from indigenous peoples, even like the Swiss chocolate and these things that we think of as coming from other countries is actually indigenous people. And that really got me thinking. And I really hope that people that hear this will really start to look at food differently. And that's my whole aspect or my whole quest with this food medicine channel with Gucci to go. And uh, Gucci is the food energy that we get from the food and the drink is to begin looking at food a different way, not as something to just be taken in because we need to get through the day, but having that relationship with it and understanding that, you know, we need to give gratitude for this food. 
for the, the jobs that were created along the way, for the origin source of this food, whoever that was, and for the willingness of whoever discovered these plant medicines and these plant foods to share that with those of us or our ancestors that arrived here and had no clue what we were doing. We had no idea how to live in this environment. And it was only through the generosity and only through the compassion of the indigenous peoples that lived here that we survived. And it's time for those of us, need we need to turn around and we need to give some gratitude and some thanks and some uplifting and some help. And we owe a lot. We owe a lot. And it's time for us to take 100% accountability and responsibility for what happened and what we're doing and step out of the way and support you and others on what you're doing, because that's the only way that we're going to heal. And I believe that so much can be healed from the passing of a bowl, the energetic and passing of a bowl of a food, sitting around a table together, you know, sharing stories, bringing back these stories that are passed down in the lineage and in the family and remembering who you are through and over this bowl of food and these stories and these shared experiences. I believe that those moments can begin to be a balm for the brokenness, for the shattering that we've caused. And I believe that we can use those bowls of food and that that moment of sharing and sharing of stories to start crossing these fault lines that we have placed everywhere. And I believe food is the way to heal. Food medicine is the way to heal. Food is the way to heal all of the hurt. It's the first medicine we ever experience. It's the least invasive thing that we can do for ourselves three to six times a day. We can heal ourselves through food. And I really, really, really hope that people hear your story and the story of others and start looking at food differently and start giving gratitude and lifting up some thanks and some gratitude for your people and other indigenous peoples for getting us here where we are, you know? So from me, thank you personally. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's there's quite a bit there and, and so much of what the kind of the journey that I've been on, you see it. I didn't learn about decolonization or indigeneity or like health disparities or substance abuse and recovery concepts through university. It was by following the food. It was the foods, native foods that brought me to the doorstep of decolonization. Right. It was foods that brought me to, to you know, get a basic understanding of epidemiology and how research has impacted our people as a tribe. Yes. How, um, you know, learn, learning about so much colonial violence through a lens of food has really kind of helped to, you know, shape my perspective now as, as a clinician. Because leaving Sunrise, the hotel, there were some choices to be made. I had, I had offers to go to the East Coast and go to the Northwest or to, to, to Cali to set up shop and do something. But I didn't feel like it was, um, at least for me, the most meaningful. I felt like if I went to the East Coast or to the West Coast, I would be feeding mostly non-Native people. And I felt like doing that would be more performative than impactful. Mm -hmm. I felt it, my intuition told me that I could do just about anything and people would buy it as Native foods. And that's not what I'm about. I've never really been that kind of cook. And so I feel like, you know, being rooted and being connected, that's when the opportunity with the Rainbow Treatment Center arised. 
And I, by that time I was already about six years sober and I had, you know, entered into a maintenance phase and sobriety phase and had created all these new experiences. So taking the, all this training and journey and uh, trial and error to create the nutritional recovery program and create the concept of Café Gaujon, it's really a distillation of lived experience, mm -hmm. cultural intuition, and clinical modalities, but also really kind of walking a fine line on clinical modalities or with clinical modalities because so much of therapy culture is from a Western construct that's damaging to the spiritual nature of who we are. So yes. the reason that we call the cafe Café Gaujon is because Gaujon is an Apache word that word is used in all types of context, from everyday speech to laughter to ceremony to prayers. It has a whole multitude of ways to reflect beauty, health, balance, love, happiness. And so as we were searching for a word to describe or to name the cafe, kind of along the line of walking that fine line of treatment modalities and clinical jargon and not trying to be another generation of missionaries, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not trying to, not trying to recolonize through therapy culture. Right. Um, that one, that one word, to me, in my opinion, as white Mount Apache, it, it alludes to the fact that everything we have for recovery is already packed into our culture. If that one word can be used to greet someone in the morning or put someone to rest at a grave or to reincarnate a deity in ceremony, then there's all the other components that we need, clinical and more. So it kind of sets stage for a behavioral health journey that's guided by food. And just all this experience is, I've seen, you know, I'm, for me, I don't consider myself a, there's, there's terms out there around the work that you see related to native foods. There's like, um, you know, food activists, there's, you know, mm -hmm. food, you know, wild crafters, there's foragers, there's all this, you know, political, it's like a popularity contest. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, who can get the, who can get the cool points, who can come up with, you know, neat things to get a lot of likes on social media. And there's also a lot of political academic jargon. There's a lot of legal jargon around food and food justice. And it's, it's confusing. I think it can create, it does create barriers for people that come from my community because mm -hmm. it's, it's a turnoff. If you're not formally trained or you're not really into it, you don't want to hear someone talking that hardcore, that smart about food. You know what I mean? Right. Food is so right. simple and powerful that it's, you know, it's our paradigm is very different. So I think the way that I look at food is that when you're, by planting corn or cooking food or foraging food, it scoots all that jargon to the side and that it reconnects right to the core with the cosmos, you know, time and place. Yeah. It connect, right. it connect, it's that direct connection to indigenousness. It's that direct connection to life itself. It's that direct connection to the person's personal experience that will teach them it's real. Not my mm -hmm. words, not yours, not anyone else's. It's that individual revitalization of the relationship, you know? Right. And that's right. what's so cool about it. That's what's so cool to me. Because, you know, I like all that political, legal, decoloniality speak. But 
I don't consider myself a food activist. I don't consider myself a celebrity chef. I'm a practitioner in my home. You know, I'm rooted. I'm here for the long haul. I've been doing this way before native foods got popular, you know? And so that's what I hope to remain. You know, I want to continue the work. And if Cafe Gaujon is just that small little benchmark that is in one sense, utilizing the colonial construct to allow us to guide ourselves back to food ways, then so be it. You know what I mean? Right. There's a lot of elitist talk about indigenous foods only, about forehand foraged and, you know, indigenous foods only type restaurants, but we're not that. My, my community here on the res, it's not only the physical health disparities, it's the biological, the spiritual, and the emotional disparities as well. Right. And those, those probably create the most profound barriers to health than the access to food. So there's a lot of different obstacles that we're facing with this little project. And so it's, it's going to take some time. You know, I hope we've set the stage for the next 50 years, for the next 100 years. I really don't know, but um, I'm in it for the long haul, you know, and I, I really dig it. I, like you read in the beginning, I got, became a behavioral health technician and a certified relapse mm-hmm. prevention specialist. And it's really neat. I couldn't have scripted it. I didn't set out working in really high end restaurants to say, I'm going to go home someday and open up a cafe working for my drug and alcohol rehab. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I imagine <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like Chicago, <laughs> New York, Paris, London, you know what I mean? You weren't thinking and of London. a former gas station turn into <laughs> yeah. a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, but that's where the food took me and and I'm okay with it. I'm totally fine with it. I'm still a student of the experience. I still feel like a beginner and I'm still ready for the next challenges, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm 42 years old now and I, I feel like I'm I'm I've become a little bit more responsible as a chef. I don't take it too seriously, but I know it's life and death serious work, you know? Right. Um, right. So I try to carry, carry my responsibilities with humor and some dignity and some discipline because, you know, it's really important. I tell my staff and my crews and my classes, you know, season with humor. You know what I mean? Season your food with humor. It's, right. uh, there's a whole bunch of neurological connections happening every single time you cook, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really neat. So Food has been been my biggest teacher, along with my little kids. You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow, kids, God, they're they are such great teachers. And I, you know, what I love the word gojo is, like you said, it's used in so many different ways in your culture. And when you say it, I almost feel the vibration of it coming from you, coming out and rippling out and hitting all those different wavelengths and. You know, yeah, the physical is only one part of the overall healing, right? I mean, you've got that deep spiritual healing that has to happen, the, the mental, spiritual, emotional, physical, all of that has to align into complete wellness to layer that individual and to connect back in. And I just, I love that that word, it feels like that word encompasses all of those levels. You know, I do have a question for you. Food, when you create dishes, recipes, is it that you are looking at the foods? Because this is just, a, it's it's fascinating to me. Are you looking at the foods and layering these foods for an overall flavor dynamic? Or 
Are you layering these foods because these are the way these foods were traditionally placed together? I, I've, I follow you in both of my accounts on Instagram and I'm liking it all over the place. And I'm looking up things. I'm like, Ooh, what is that cactus bud thing? What is that? And, and I looked that up and I was like, Ooh, that's fascinating. And then you had amaranth greens the other day. And I just stared at the beautiful picture of those amaranth greens and knew that they, at least for my medicine, they resonate with the heart because they are greens and because they were such a beautiful red purple color. But I, the way that we combine foods in Chinese medicine and the way we combine our herbal formulas is we have a chief that does the main thing that we want it to do, whether we want it to go to a certain organ or we want it to create a certain substance in the body. And then we have assistants that come in and support that. And then we have envoys to direct the energy to go certain places, directions in the body. And then we have one that ameliorates and pulls everything together and kind of tucks everything in together. So I didn't know if in your food ways that there is a layering of food in that way for an overall dynamic that you're trying to have occur is a overall food flavor experience. How is that? How do you determine? Because as a chef, you've got so much wisdom and knowledge and how to combine foods. And I'm wondering at this point, how much of it is your culinary training versus your intuitive, you know, cultural knowing that these are the foods that need to go together. There was a lot of questions there. there. So hopefully you can find the questions and answer those. Sorry about that. I get so excited when I talk about food. No, I think there are layers to layering the food, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of what we post on, on social media is see when we're creating dishes and menus, like kind of, like I said, a lot of the jargon. And if we were to do indigenous foods only for our demographic on the white Mount Apache tribe, that might create more barriers than, than pathways. So one of the concepts that I like to stick to is meeting people where they're at. And mm-hmm. so It's kind of people that live in a large city take for granted the food culture that's all around them, the wide range of restaurants they have to choose from, the accessibility, the speed at which they get it, the convenience, the whole culture of food in a large city. Mm -hmm. It's very common for people to just see, let's go get Chinese, let's go get Italian, let's go get Jamaican, let's go get Greek, let's go get X, Y, and Z. But out here on the res, it's very different. There's generations of people that have grown up not even ever knowing what a Greek dish might be, mm-hmm. might not even grow up ever knowing what real ramen looks like, might not ever, you know, might not have ever tasted anything other than reservation foods. Mm-hmm. And so we start and we take the approach of expanding food vocabulary and so that we can create those reference points through the dishes so that maybe next year we can say, this is this the way we made the broth is similar to how we made, you know, ramen broth or pho broth or a stock. Mm-hmm. We're hoping to layer our communities, uh, enhance our community's food vocabulary. So okay. we're not going really hardcore to just do, like I said, all native foods right away. Mm-hmm. But we're not doing French fries and fry bread and, you know, some of these convenience foods. Right. We're trying to keep it colorful, fresh, tangible and fun. That way we can kind of keep people coming and kind of t- use that uh, emotional gathering piece where people come into the cafe and they share and they talk. But there is layers to incorporating the knowledge and the traditions in the food. Mm-hmm. And sometimes an ingredient calls for it. Sometimes it doesn't. Again, with this team that we're building now at the cafe, 
all of us are from White River. All of us are in different stages of recovery from something. All of us have different skill sets. Some of us mm-hmm. speak Apache and some of us don't. But so the framework is kind of the way that I'm, I'm working to structure it is letting them kind of express their voices through the food and the creative mm-hmm. spirit of the team. You know what I mean? The group conscience, as yeah. opposed to just as opposed to just my perspective on food. I've got some young Apache chefs in the kitchen that I'm really excited for. I can't wait to see them commit a few more years and really expand their skill sets and um, really take some leadership positions. So there's many ways that we do create dishes. Sometimes it's very simple, the way grandma does it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's very chefy, like you might see on social media, you know? So it just kind of depends on the mood, on the mood we're in or who we're cooking for. But what I think is most important is that we're White Mount Apaches, we're on the res, and we're circulating the knowledge in our community, you know? Love that. I love that. I love that you're increasing the food vocabulary, that so many people are so limited in, in knowing exactly what is in front of them because they had such limited resources. And I love that you're taking that slow build. And, and like you said, meeting people where they are. That's the the most important thing. And as a an acupuncturist and a doctor of Chinese medicine, that's exactly how we have to treat people is however they show up in front of me is exactly how I have to treat them and, and who they are tomorrow is not who they are today. So if they come in tomorrow, I have to treat that person that they are exactly who they are. Um, so I love that you are doing food that same way. You're presenting the food exactly how it is, where it is to meet this person, where they are with the conscious joining together of the people within your staff and part of your team and where they are. I mean, it just is that community aspect within your food, even in the creation of it. I do have a question. In Chinese medicine, we have different cooking styles and methods according to the seasons of the year. Is there a particular cooking style that is considered an Apache cooking style? Anything at all? Yeah, I think um, one of our favorite methods is cooking in the ground, barbecuing Ooh. corn. So right now the farmers are you know waiting to plant their corn. Mm-hmm. They're already seeding and growing greens and all kinds of stuff for us. But at in September, November, they're going to be at harvest time. And that's when they dig massive pits and they harvest all the corn and they, they cook it underground. That's an old tradition, you know, going all the way back to Mesoamerica, down to South America. That's one of the, mm. I think, one of the most important food technologies that made its way from where corn originated, north and south, you know. And so we've yeah. adopted it as Apaches and Navajos do it too. To me, that's one of my favorite ways to cook. Because it requires so much. It requires mm-hmm. so many people or so many resources, so much timing, so much care. You know, there's mm-hmm. a ceremony and song. So that's one of the really oh. neat ones. One of the neat ones to, to do it. Want to kind of go that- back to that question about like building mm-hmm. the, the foods. Mm-hmm. I think what helps us, or at least what helps me to do my best to, to create and practice the foods with some integrity, I think, or some responsibility is I really look at what we do through like an, an anthropological lens. Mm. I look at it like what we're doing right now is a cultural occurrence. This has never happened for the White Mountain Apache tribe ever. And anything that we do, we write, we cook, has the potential to make it into the history books of our tribe. Yes. So that kind of forces us to be a little bit more responsible with the selection of ingredients, the humor we incorporate. 
the slang mm-hmm. and the language and how we make people laugh and the approach we're taking. Because, you know, when we look back on it, you know, a lot of the books, the anthropological texts on the Western Apache group were a lot of them were by Goodwin or Keith Basso. And Keith Basso is a family friend. And when I read those Basso books, I recognize place names. I recognize family names. I recognize Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff in the books. And it's really apparent that, you know, an anthropologist just came into the community and asked around who grows corn, who knows the songs and people just pointed. So, you know, that same thing could happen to us, you know? So who's cooking right now? They will come see us. And what we choose to say or present could have the potential a lasting ripple effect in text and books, academic, culinary, whatever it might be. So that kind of really comes with, you know, I think that only came in with sobriety for me, that perspective, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I was thinking like, what am I actually doing? You know, how is this going to have a lasting impact? So that's kind of how I try to look at the, the framework of what we do as a cultural occurrence. It's pretty cool. That is very cool. I mean, just the impact that you are having on future generations by the food that you're creating and in so many ways that ripple is going out and, you know, you're, you're going down in your people's history right now. You're going to be the one that they're telling stories about. You and your team are going to be the ones that they're going to be telling stories about, you know, decades from now. That's so powerful and so beautiful. Oh my God. How amazing. It's such a beautiful thing to understand and picture and bear witness to. I'm just grateful that we get to bear witness to that. I have a question too about ceremony and ritual. Do you have ceremonies or rituals that you do each day before starting the cooking, before starting the shifts, before doing these things? Because I, I know for me, there are rituals and ceremonies that I do as part of my beginning to do my work each day and my honoring of the people that that made it possible for me to do the work that I do. And I was just curious if you bring that component into your food as well, because I can't imagine you separating yourself from that. It's one and the same, I would think. No, like structured ceremony or ritual. I think we just get right to work. We get there at six in the morning and we're open at seven. If anything, it's a, it's a pre-shift where we all gather and go over what we need to do and get going. Mm-hmm. But we do do, you know, our whole team is aware of, you know, mindfulness. And we've done some of those group trainings and stuff as a team. But for mm-hmm. the most part, we're really, we're really focused on production from the time we're there till the time we leave. So mm-hmm. it's uh, pretty mm-hmm. fast paced. Gosh, I just, I cannot imagine. I had looked at culinary school before medical school and it just, I knew the fast pace was faster than my little slow th- Southern self would move. We talk slowly here. We move slowly here. So there was no way that I could handle the pressures of the kitchen at all. And I don't like being yelled at. So I just would not handle that pressure well at all. But yeah, I just am so fascinated by what you're doing. And if other people wanted to help support what you are doing, I, you know, I know that, you know, you had said in one place, the best thing that non-Indigenous people can do is give you the space and give you all the space to bring your food ways back before trying to appropriate them and use them for whatever we would use them for. But is there anything that we can do? Is there some place that we can donate to support what you're doing? Is there any way that we can respectfully get involved from a great distance and give you what you need to continue your work? 
I think just developing ethical and respectful relationships with any Native person, not just myself. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate to be a visible character in this, but there are many, many others that are in different stages of their journey. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to food functions from nutrition to dinners to cultural events, I think really allowing Indigenous people to provide their services and compensate them and support them as professionals. Again, because that lens of anthropology, you're hiring someone that is a representative of the survivors of war, the survivors of the brutality of colonialism. And the skills that they have might not necessarily meet your expectations of what you perceive as fine dining or cooking, but it still is Indigenous. So I think allowing people to do the work and speak and utilize their voices is very important. There's Mm -hmm. a whole number of Native American food producers out there. I think it really requires people to do their own study and research to find what's in their area and to really help to support and continue the journey for us if more people understood the histories of the landscapes they occupy and to not really take it so personal that we're being aggressive. And when you hear themes like the land back movement or when you see us getting standing in front of pipelines, or when you see us being land advocates, or when you see us being advocates for social justice and structural change, there is absolutely nothing wrong with our people. It's the colonial power structures built on us, over us, that create the impression. So I think if there's anything that people can do from a far distance, it's to really take a personal examination of your own ethics and your own belief systems. Because a lot of what you believe is damaging to indigenous hearts and minds. And that, that's a hard truth. That's a hard truth. So I think the first step begins with individuals. And again, you know, go to the grocery, you know, go after this, go Google indigenous foods of the Americas. And you'll, you'll see representation of that 70% of foods. Then you'll go to the grocery store and realize that whole section of Italian foods That's all native foods. (laughs) That's Mm. all indigenous tomatoes. That's all indigenous beans, cannelloni beans, flagole beans, whatever they might be. Those are all indigenous cultivars. And you'll realize that native foods change the world. And retelling Mm -hmm. that narrative and sharing it in the home is really important. So Mm -hmm. I think outside of, you know, those physical contributions or donations, I think there's also the vital resource of challenging the master narrative of American culture. And allowing people to retell it and share it for ourselves as well, because that's the pathway to recovery. It's the pathway to recovery, not just for health disparities, but to hopefully combating some of the changes because of climate change, combating some of the racial injustices of our generation right now, Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter movements, um, social justice, police brutality. There's a whole slew of things that are coming to the surface right now. So, and I think food and relationship building is a big part of the the recovery uh, puzzle. So, yeah. Right. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Well, I'm going to certainly do my part and try to educate people as I go about where these foods originated from and who to give gratitude to. And so if there's anything that I can do on my end to help you, your work, please know I'm here. Please reach out. Please let me know how I can be of service. And I'm just honored to know you. Like I said, I'm honored to know that you and others like you exist in the world. Is there anything, a last thought that you would like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I want to thank the listeners for taking the time and opening up your heart and mind to some of these concepts. And, you know, know that food is very powerful. 
Every time you turn on the stove, micro universes collide. History, language, nutrition, science, behavioral health, art, culture, all kinds of things. They all come colliding together. And we have a very profound opportunity to unite our families and mend relationships. And it starts with us. There's a lot of grandiose themes and topics when we talk about public health and food justice. But the most radical part of this revolution is what you decide to do with foods. And it's the most intimate intimate thing in the universe is your little household, your little kitchen, what you choose to feed your family. And that's the beauty and the power of this, this food revolution that impacts us all. It's a journey and it's a lifelong pursuit. So thank you for being open to that. You know, cook with the cook and season your food with humor and laughter. You know, create new neural pathways every single time you cook. You know, it's it's a practice. It is a practice. So I want to thank everyone for your time and attention on my from behalf of my family and the here in the White Mountain Apache tribe and Western Apache in Arizona. You know, thanks. Thank you, Chef. I so appreciate you. Thank you for your time and your dedication and all your education and your commitment. And I just want to tell you, it's been an absolute honor. So saying goodbye to everyone until next time, take sacred care of yourselves and know that you're loved. Bye. We want you to be a member of our Gucci to go food medicine family. To do that, subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and interact with us on Patreon via our at Gucci to go handle. Or for links to all of our social media platforms, visit our website at gucci to go.com. That's spelled G U Q I T O G O.com. All recorded and printed materials are copyrighted by Phoenix Moon Acupuncture and Apothecary, doing business as Gucci to go. Any unauthorized duplication is strictly prohibited. The information provided on this podcast is for information, education, entertainment, and general knowledge only, and is not intended to diagnose nor treat any health concern or disease. If symptoms or descriptions sound familiar or ring true for you regarding a health concern or disease, please consult with a qualified healthcare provider to receive a consultation, diagnosis, and guidance, as we cannot do those things over the airwaves, no matter how good at our craft we may be.